0: Funding for The Hinckley Report and this podcast is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund and AARP Utah. Thank you for listening to The Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Good evening and welcome to The Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Frank Pignanelli, partner at Foxley and Pignanelli government relations firm. Heidi Hatch, anchor with KUTV2 News, and Doug Wilkes, executive editor of the Deseret News. Thank you so much for being with us this evening. I want to get right into uh, some meetings that happened this week with our legislature. They had their interim meetings. We got a little bit of a preview about what's going to come during the legislative session, and some of the issues got Pretty hot right away. Uh, I want to start with one uh, from Representative Christiansen and and uh, Lyman Doug, uh, because the Deseret News just wrote an editorial about this as well. Uh, once again, a conversation emerging, at least from them, about election fraud in the state of Utah and throughout the country.
1: Well, when a, when an audit's used as a political weapon, it doesn't serve its intended purpose. There was a sentiment that uh, let's just have the audit and see what happens. That has that does no harm. But what we've seen in Arizona and elsewhere is it does do harm because it undermines an election. It undermines when there's no reason to bring forth an audit. And in Utah, the election was sound. Donald Trump won decisively. There have been zero complaints. Uh, Both Governor Cox and uh, Lieutenant Governor Henderson, they came forward with very strong statements. It's it's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. But more importantly, it actually does harm when you do an audit like this.
0: Well, it's interesting, Heidi, because uh, as the Lieutenant Governor said, we had. 462 races in the state of Utah, not a single protest uh, came from any of those candidates in those races, yet we still have some legislators looking for this audit of those election results. What, what is the impact um, kind of on the state and why did our elected officials come out so quickly against that request?
2: Well, I think it's important that they come out quickly because we didn't have any contested races. I don't think that there were no questions in the election overall across the country. And where there were questions or concerns, they should look after them, but we didn't have those issues here. So I think that's where the political theater comes in, where they wanna, you know, go to their home state after they've been to a meeting someplace else and say, I'm putting my foot down, you've Mm -hmm. gotta look into it. But it doesn't help confidence, as he said. You know, we really need to be going into this next election trying to help people understand how our elections work, why they work and why they work so well so that people are willing to turn out and vote again because otherwise we're going to be losing people and sliding backwards to a point where people don't want to vote. Uh
0: Uh, Making sure people do vote and trust Mm -hmm. the system, Frank. I want to get to that for a second. Doug, you you referenced that we had a a quick response from our governor and lieutenant governor. So I want to read this to you, Frank, and give us some context for this statement from the governor's office itself and how it relates to this issue. Uh, This is what they said. We are frustrated by the misinformation THAT WAS PRESENTED IN THE JUDICIARY INTERIM COMMITTEE TODAY. NAMELY, THAT VOTING MACHINES CAN BE HACKED, THAT THERE ARE MORE BALLOTS THAN VOTERS, THAT ALGORITHMS CONTROL VOTER REGISTRATION, AND OTHER SPURIOUS CLAIMS MADE WITHOUT EVIDENCE. ALL OF THESE ASSERTIONS ARE ABSOLUTE FALSEHOODS AND RUN COUNTER TO UTAH LAW AND THE FOUNDATION OF OUR CONSTITUTIONAL REPUBLIC. PRETTY STRONG.
3: VERY STRONG. Uh, LET ME GIVE YOU A LITTLE BIT OF BACKGROUND. So I, you know, I go to interim, in fact, this last interim Wednesday was the 35th season of interim for me. And I'm walking across the grounds of the Capitol. I said, well, you know, I could go to a tax policy discussion or I could go watch this committee <laughs> hearing. And you know what I chose. So I was there, I watched the committee hearing in person and then spoke to several legislators afterwards, including the chairman, Lisenby, who did a great job. You've got a couple of dynamics that are happening here. And I think the governor's office and the lieutenant governor's office encapsulated some of the frustration they they have the ability to say that and they should say that but the legislators are not as free to say this because they're really uh, hearing from some, a small group of constituents but they're very vocal a couple things of dynamics that are running through this process number one is the county clerks most uh lawmakers especially those outside of Salt county have a strong relationship with the county clerks who do a phenomenal job in fact uh, the the Hinkley Institute did several seminars, of, of which I was honored to participate in, where we highlighted the tremendous amount of effort these county clerks are doing uh, in order to protect the integrity of the elections. And so when uh, Representative Christensen and some others were called saying, are you attacking these clerks? They, they backed off. But in a sense, they are because they're, they're they're trying to repudiate the system. The second thing that the element that's happening here is that this truly is the Trump-inspired group. And they're small, but they're very vocal. And the thing about the legislature that people forget, it is a pure democracy. And so these lawmakers have to respond to these, these elements. The, another dynamic that's happening is lawmakers do have faith in the process. And that was reflected in what the governor's saying, because they have faith in their clerks. But they have faith in the guy who was running the election system last year, and that's Spencer Cox. And, of course, Deidre is now running it, too. So you have all these different elements. Now, what a lot of the people don't understand is when you have something that contentious, and what you do is you stick it in an interim committee. I did that when I was a legislator, because that way you have a chance to hear from it. And then does it really end up in legislation? Probably not, there may be some tweaks there. But the bigger picture is this, is that I think there is a concern that you have this dynamic of a lack of faith in institutions. And so the governor's office is trying to say, okay, it's not, does not exist here. So I think a strong statement needed to be made, the governor did that, that's important because that way it reassures the moderate Utah's who are not talking to the lawmakers that indeed need that the system is sound and it is valid.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, please sir. Well, just and just to add on this, the the problem with this is it doesn't settle the matter. You know, you use an audit to settle a matter and everyone agrees to that process. But as we saw in Arizona, social media ratchets up again. People don't accept the results. Uh, President Biden got a few more votes through that process, and yet it continues and it continues. So when it's used as a political hammer, it doesn't do us any good, and it actually hurts us.
0: Mm-hmm. Heidi, at the heart of some of this that came up in the media. of course, as, as Frank indicated, Representative Lisenby did not allow this to go any further and the conversation at the end of the time. But part of the conversation was a little bit of a shot at mail- in ballots. And Utah is one of eight states where every eligible voter is able to to get a ballot and vote by mail. Uh, What are some of the implications of those allegations, and how do Utah's feel, because I know you've talked to them, about being able to vote by mail?
2: I think generally most people like voting by mail because it makes it easier. You can vote at home in the luxury of your pajamas at your kitchen table, and more people are likely to vote. But I do think there are some things that we've become accustomed to where you have the pomp and circumstance of showing up on the actual election day, and you hand your ballot over to someone someone and somehow that feels safe and secure it's what we've done so there have been some changes we've had to get used to of whether you drop it in a ballot box or in the you know mail drop utah i think is ahead of the curve with most of the country in that we've been testing out trying out and it's working there were some bumps in the road i think utah county took an election cycle to catch up and figure out what was going on but it's working well here in utah i think where some of the concerns have come in the last year is we saw with the pandemic other states tried the mail-in election that maybe hadn't been caught up as quickly as we had. They had problems, and when you see other people having problems, somehow it's reflected onto us, and we think that we're having those same problems, which we were not. Uh-huh.
0: I, I want to ask you, Frank, as a former elected official, just kind of in the mind of someone who's running for office, and you have in the past successfully, uh, does this change the dynamic much for how you campaign, knowing that these ballots are just are going out to every eligible voter? And oftentimes, particularly in Utah, those ballots come in well before the election day.
3: They do. In my opinion, the mail-in balloting has changed, substantially changed the campaign process for the better. Uh, You don't have the October surprise because I did it and my opponents did it. You drop a piece of literature two days for Election Day so you can attack them. You can't really do that. The second thing is that you can track over the period of three weeks who's voting and not voting and really urge people to come out and vote. The other thing about it, too, is it really gives people a chance if they have a question, especially on a matter that's an initiative or something like that, they can go look it up and do some research. In my opinion, it's been much, much improved, the election process, which is why people will accept it. In terms of voter fraud in the mail, there's a little bit that does happen. Uh, What it is, it's the mothers of missionaries or or children at school, like my wife, who try to vote for their their child. That's, when you talk to these clerks, that's the biggest problem you have, It's people who want to participate in the mail-in process, and they talk to a child who's living someplace else, say, oh yeah, can you vote for me? So Utah has taken the elections by mail, and typical Utah, the level of excellence is here, it's all the way up there. We really are the gold standard of voting in this country. And that's why I think a lot of Utah's elected officials say, if you're gonna make a tax on this, please have it verified. And because and and, it really works well at Utah. We've really done a good job, but we should be proud of what we do in terms of how we elect our officials. Mm-hmm.
0: Doug, one last comment on this because of some polling we've done with you in the Deseret News uh, asking Utahns, about 75 percent of Utahns said uh, they they participated in vote by mail and they believe that it was done properly and their vote was counted properly.
1: Yeah, and that's good data. David Magleby, um, they did some data um, years ago, might have been 2016. Utah was ahead of the curve on this. Utah is... um, Putting itself forward to the nation. It's been written about in the Atlantic and other news organizations. And there's overwhelming confidence in, in vote by mail. In fact, in the study that David Magleby did, they, there was more confidence in vote by mail and more concern about walking into the poll, depending on the experience someone had. So, overwhelmingly, Utah's uh, done a good job with this. It has changed media a little bit. It used to be that you could do a lot of information and content talking about the candidates the week before. But now media has to decide. Well, how are we? You know, at what point are we going to start talking about the candidates? Yeah, exactly. At what point do you have a debate that you know maybe you're going to televise? And so, we have had to recalibrate a little bit. How do we get the information? Because we know people are going to be at their kitchen table, taking a look at the information and having a little more thoughtful choice, perhaps.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to get to a couple other items that happened in interim session that uh, I think are going to have some. Conversations, some tough conversations between now and then. Uh, one, Heidi, this is about sort of K through 12 transparency. Interesting. Uh, this is Senator Lincoln Fillmore uh, is proposing legislation. Uh, this is getting into the classroom, saying materials for K through 12 dealing with social sciences need to be posted online for parents to review beforehand before they are taught in the class.
2: I just don't think that's going to work. I know that we have a curriculum that's laid out, and I think if parents want to check into what that curriculum, they can. But our teachers come into the classroom with their own reality and the life they've lived and the news that's happening of the day. And we have to give our teachers the ability to talk to our kids about the current events and connect them into history. And so I think that's where parenting has to come in, you know, sit down at the kitchen table with your kids, talk about what they're learning at school, talk about the ideas and Our kids are going to be exposed to different ideas and I don't know that you can always know every word that's going to happen in a class. Some teachers are gonna mess up, they're going to give their opinion in a way they probably shouldn't instead of asking kids what they think or sharing in the right way. BUT WE CAN'T CONTROL EVERY WORD A TEACHER IS GOING TO SAY. AND I THINK THAT WE HAVE TO GIVE A LITTLE TRUST IN THE SYSTEM AND TRUST OUR KIDS THAT THEY'RE WILLING TO LISTEN AND LEARN AND THAT WE'VE RAISED THEM IN A WAY THAT THEY CAN WEIGH ALL THAT INFORMATION.
0: Mm-hmm. NOW, FRANK, THIS GOES BACK A, lo- a LONG ways. I mean, there, THERE ARE HIDDEN ISSUES INSIDE THIS AS WELL. right? THERE IS SOME CONCERN FROM, legislat- from LEGISLATORS, JUST LIKE HEIDI WAS TALKING ABOUT NOW, ABOUT CERTAIN uh, ISSUES THAT ARE GOING TO BE TAUGHT AND WHETHER OR NOT THE PARENTS ARE FULLY AWARE OF WHAT THOSE ARE.
3: This is a long-time, decades-long issue because I remember when I was in the legislature and something said that's about we want to teach children about the social aspects of something. And there was a big push saying they're teaching socialism. And and so this goes back. Now, I'm torn on this issue because my three children went through public schools, and each one of them came home one day and said the teacher said that lobbyists are part of the problem. (laughs) So I I would love to have advance notice of that being a part of the curriculum. That was Uh, pretty spontaneous, I'm sure. <laughs> but on the other hand, what you're seeing is you've got these legislators that are getting pressure again, or uh, probably on, on maybe the same group of people in many ways, to talk about deal with critical race theory and some of the teachings that they, they don't like. And again, they're hearing from this group and they're trying to figure out how do we deal with this because the sponsor of this which transparency admitted when they were discussing this in special session about critical race. He how do who wasn't sure how to even define critical race. They're trying to figure out a way to deal with some of the more outspoken parents at the same time uh, that doesn't interfere. It's, it's, it's a transparency. So they're hearing about this. They're trying to figure out an alternative, again, through the interim committee process. What do they do? And I and I offer this as a challenge. If those who are concerned about this transparency, they need to talk to the legislator because these lawmakers are hearing from individuals that are concerned about it. They're trying to figure out an easy path through it. A lot of concerns have been raised, but that's what's happening here, the responding to the dynamic of outspoken individuals.
0: Well, watch this one closely. Another item came up, Doug. Uh, this is Senator Kirk Cullimore. uh, What he's calling Prosperity 2030, sweeping reforms when it comes to the environment and air quality.
1: Um, it's fascinating to look at those reforms. One thing we learned through the pandemic, through COVID-19, when all the cars were off the road, the air got better. And I think just get better in Utah, it got better around the world. So, is there a way to get higher-functioning, cleaner cars onto the road? In uh, you know, A decade ago, we did the Cash for Clunkers program uh, nationally, put a billion dollars in and within a month, that money was spent. They put two million more in and 700,000 cars were pulled off the road. So there are things that can be done to incentivize people to either um, get, buy a cleaner car, get rid of their old car. And then there's already standards in place, so that the fuel is is going to get cleaner.
0: Yeah. So Heidi, this is so interesting. I'm just going to get a couple of these points. So uh, it's sort of the cash for clunkers idea here. It was, it was an effort to uh, get cleaner vehicles on the road. Tiered pricing for vehicle registration, new standards on emission, and even some cap and trade. So talk about a couple of those big issues, but also the fact that it, this is a Republican. Yeah. Uh, in our legislature, in leadership that's proposing this, which is something you've not seen for a
2: while. And he says it's the number one thing he's hearing from constituents. And I think we all care about the air. And I think it's important when we look at the health. I think he's got a big wish list here and a big tackle. And one concern I have looking at it is when you're looking at asking people to replace their cars. I think that's hard enough mm-hmm. in any given year when you're talking about replacing a car. Because I think if most people could and they had the money, they'd buy a new car. But right now, Car prices are going up, whether they're used or they're new. They're talking about the possibility that it could be two, five, even ten years down the road that we catch up to the supply chain of getting the cars we want. So I think they're good goals to work towards. The question is, how realistic are they, and do we have the money to make it happen? Do families have the money to make it happen? And then can we back it up on the other end where we actually have these clean yeah. cars and the technology available for people to buy if they want them? Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, yeah. Frank, Frank, it's interesting. Heidi makes some really great points here, and what, what's also interesting in these conversations from. Uh, a Republican legislator with lots of support right here. It's, there's like an economic development argue, argument in here what Heidi was just referencing as well. where They're saying this is good for the whole state. In fact, it may be critical for the state. Which,
3: what's fascinating is the politics. You know, 12 years ago, the Clean Air Caucus up at the legislature was Patrice Aaron and a couple of Democrats, and in the last several years, it has dramatically changed because I deal a lot because I represent, you know, automobile manufacturers. I, developed, I represent some manufacturing companies. And the issues that the questions we're getting are not from Democrats. It's from Republicans. Again, they're responding from Republican families asking questions. Why can't the air be any cleaner? The whole political dynamic has completely shifted. I attended a legislative breakfast with the high tech community and lawmakers. And the number one issue was clean air. And they said, we have people that we want to bring in, and they see the air. And so that's part of the economic development. The other part of the economic development piece is we want great manufacturing here. But because of the air, we can only do so much inside the Wasatch Front, because otherwise we we exceed federal standards. So it really is becoming a critical component, not just of health, but also of economic development. And that's why you see a lot of Republicans responding to it. So it, I would say that this has now become a major issue for the Republican caucus both in the House and Senate, just based upon in response to the constituents. And that's, and that's a good thing because it, it does help statewide the economy and the health. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I want to get to some elections that are coming uh, forward. Uh, and I want to start with the very local one. I want to talk about Sandy City for just a moment, not just about what's happening in Sandy City, but uh, it'll get to this issue of ranked choice voting, which is just so interesting. So Heidi, Heidi, uh, Eight candidates running for Sandy City Mayor, like four members of the council, their own executive director that runs that works for them. Talk about what's happening there a little bit and uh you know and why why you know there's so many people jumping in this race at this well, time.
2: Well, Halloween's probably gonna be relaxing because they'll only have to answer their door so many times to the kids that are coming, but I'm assuming that they have so many people knocking on their doors right now that wanna get their message out because ranked choice voting gives all of these people yeah. an option where they can run and they have a chance. My concern when you look at it, eight people is a lot to get to know, to understand, to understand their policies, their politics. And so it'll be interesting to see how this shakes out because I see ranked choice voting working so well in races like the governor's race. If we were to go back and we were looking at that crowded primary, there were so many candidates. There was good candidates. We understood where they stood on the issues. And I think everyone could probably rank out where each each of them stood in their mind. The question is, can they do that in Sandy and go through? Because a lot of them are already serving on the council or work with the yeah. council. so. I'm interested to see how it shakes out and if people pick their favorite and just vote for their favorite or if they really do go through and rank them and yes. vote for them in that direction. Uh,
0: no matter what happens, there's going to be a, some awkward conversations there uh, at their yes. city council uh, going going forward. So, so, Doug, can we talk about how this really plays out for the state? Of course, our legislature paved the way for cities to be able to do this. This may be a, a prominent one, but I want to get to this theme that, that Heidi just brought up too and using the governor's race is a good example. When you have a lot of candidates Uh, like we had for the governor's race, it is possible for someone to win that primary with 30 something percent of the vote. Uh, This at least gets people, this ranked choice voting option and says, well, if I go one through eight and I rank all of them, I have a chance of at least my one or two (laughs) being the one that wins.
1: Well, the political parties still want control and power, right? So political parties get nervous about this kind of ranked choice voting. If you had ranked choice voting in the governor's race, that would have changed the dynamic of that race pretty dramatically um, on a local level where you have a, a city council and you have a group in it it, it does seem to make sense right because well here are the people that have the most message now we'll rank them um, it's typically on a local level nonpartisan. Um, so you take your top couple of you know the people and then let them run off on a statewide race so and you have a pretty dominant republican party it's going to be two republicans maybe in that final vote three Republicans? How are you going to do it? Where does an independent line up? So it's, it's really about the political powers of the parties and the political power of the people. And it'll be interesting to see how ranked choice voting works out, who wins that. That battle,
0: mm-hmm. uh, Frank. I want to draw on your experience as a as a elected official as well. And of course, this idea is you know like we'll use the Sandy City race as the example. You have these eight candidates, and so you rank all of them, and the the, the last place person is knocked off those votes. Their number two goes until you have someone that wins the majority. Um, how are elected officials, maybe not just a, a super local race like ONE we're talking about here, but maybe going forward for the state of Utah, is there? an interest in this from like legislators, for example?
3: Uh, there, first of all, this is not devoid of controversy. You've got studies on either side showing that this works and uh, helps democracy. It, you know, it's one thing for the legislature to say, okay, we'll let the municipalities do it. But I, I'll be surprised if legislators uh, wanna do this on a statewide basis for the legislature or state offices. The reason why is if you if you win the first round and you get the most votes, but then all of a sudden, as subsequent rounds happen and you lose, there's going to be a lot of squawking, especially if you're in a position where you can modify policy in the legislature and state government. And that's that's where, uh, for example, then you know we we saw this we saw this almost happen in the New York mayor's race this summer, where the the individual that came out. The first round had won by a substantial majority, but he almost lost it as they would so subsequent. So there were people who were gearing up to attack the system. That's why I think the concern is, is that if I win the most the first round, I, I won. And that's I think you're going to see that element really play as they further develop this. And I don't know if Utah's quite ready. It's been around, actually been around for a long time. But I'm not sure Utah's ready for further expansion of ranked choice
1: voting. Frank, do you think it will hurt democracy, Ranked Choice One? Do you have an opinion on that?
3: I, what I worry about, I, I don't think it hurts democracy. I, I like, I like anyone who, what I do worry about is that you start seeing this coalition, uh, and some people say it's good, you know, these people teaming up, and, and a lot of people say, wait, if I chose that person, I don't, I didn't choose a team. I, I, it encourages I, – what I do worry about, it's confusing, for, especially we got eight people on. It's one thing if it's three people, but eight people on. I, I worry about how the decisions are made upon that. So it doesn't mean if there's a hurts democracy, but I wonder if it hurts the process of deliberate uh, thought being made and choosing a candidate.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Uh,
0: Heidi, I want to get to a thing that, that Doug brought up just a moment ago because you, you made the idea of where does an independent lineup? And uh, I want to get to that as it refers to our our Senate race, uh, Senator Mike Lee's seat. We had a a new person enter this race over the last two weeks, Evan McMullen. Talk about uh, that. THAT ENTRY RIGHT THERE, yeah. AND ANY POTENTIAL IMPLICATIONS? Or- Old BUT
2: NEW, AGAIN, THE INTERESTING THING is, IS IN THE MEDIA, WE ALL KNOW WHO EVAN McMullen IS. WE COVERED HIM EXTENSIVELY, AND uh, HE WAS THE GUY, IF YOU DON'T REMEMBER, uh, THAT WAS RUNNING AS THE I'M NOT PRESIDENT TRUMP. AND HE GARNERED ABOUT 21%, I THINK, OF THE VOTE HERE That's IN right. UTAH DURING THE ELECTION. BUT I DON'T THINK PEOPLE HAVE BEEN THINKING ABOUT HIM SINCE THEN. AND SO HE'S COME INTO THE RACE THINKING, I'M GOING TO BE AN INDEPENDENT, I'M GOING TO MIX THINGS UP. BUT THE INTERESTING THING IS, IS that. Mike Lee is obviously running on the far right of his party. There's been multiple other people who have thrown their hat into the ring as a more moderate option. And so he's not this wild card. There's other moderate options in there. And so the more people that get into this race, the more likely it is, I think, that Senator Mike Lee keeps his seat. So it's an interesting dynamic. There's a lot of names in there. And is his name going to stand out? I don't know if people remember yeah. who he is or if he kind of had this lightning bolt moment where people just wanted another option in the presidential election.
0: Yeah. Uh, historically, Doug, uh, in the state of Utah, independent candidates don't fare very well. They're percentish ish uh, the vote. This was the one of those rare occurrences where Heidi says about 21.3% of the vote went to Evan McMullen. Um, do, do people know who he is? I mean, is this, uh, I mean, what kind of efforts he gonna have to have if he really wants to take on Senator Mike Lee, for example.
1: Well, we have polling that we'll release in conjunction with Hinckley. Um, you know, this week talked about where these candidates stand, but the independent part of this really is secondary. It's, you know, who emerges as the candidate from the Republican Party. Donald Trump won the state. Uh, Senator Mike Lee still polls very well in the state. Um, you know, we asked him what he thought about these challengers, and he says, "I'm just working. I'm going to work." Mm-hmm. He has influence in Congress. He has name recognition. He's the senior senator. It's it's difficult to unseat an incumbent, um, and you know Joe Biden's had a lot of struggle. You know, is this is the House going to flip? Um, you know, Frank follows this maybe closer than I do, but it's it's an amazing it's an amazing time. Biden's trying to win, get five trillion dollars worth of expenses, new taxes. I mean, it's a phenomenal time right now. And Mike Lee's comment: I'm just going to work. The more people who get in the race, you know, Mike Lee's still in a pretty strong, strong position. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Frank, in, the, in our last 30 seconds here, talk about the implications of that, because it is an interesting point, because uh, who he caucuses with, let's just say hypothetical, who, who would Evan McMullen caucus with, the Republicans, the Democrats? How does that impact that makeup of the House and Senate? Now you've got 20 seconds, sorry.
3: Okay, well, Evan you know, probably, I would say, would, would caucus with the Republicans, but I don't see him, how he puts it together to win. And, and Hadi made a good point. If you've got several different moderate Republicans and the independent and then, 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 then of course, the Republican primary, it, it, Mike Lee is going to win that. Mike Lee is not taking anything for granted. To his credit, he's out there fundraising. He's working hard. He'll get on the ballot through both the convention and probably a signature process. And then who are the other Republicans to get on that primary ballot? Because if it's more than one, it, it, he, it, it's going to be help him a lot. And then they've made it harder for Democrats and independents to shift a party. You have to do it, I think, by March 30th. So they made it harder, as what happened last governor's race, for that to happen and change the balance. So you'd have to really look at it and say Mike Lee really has the upper hand in this one uh, for a whole host of reasons. And the other thing is he is standing up against the Biden administration, which a majority of Utahns really like. Uh, especially in light of what's happened both on public lands issues and on the
0: economic issues. Okay, thank you. That's going to be the last word. We'll watch this race closely. Thank you all for your comments and insights tonight. Thank you for listening to The Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.